It's still crowdfunding time here at CanadaLand, and I think that means it's the perfect time to remind you of all the great perks that you get if you become a supporter. And Commons listeners get the best deal of all because you get to hear every single new episode we put out a week early. And you get to hear all of them ad-free, along with episodes of all of CanadaLand's other excellent podcasts. You'll also get discounts on merch from the CanadaLand store, including some super special limited edition swag that celebrates our 10th anniversary. And of course, there's everything else, like the supporter newsletter, bonus episodes and videos, access to behind-the-scenes content, and of course, you'll be supporting the growth of journalism in this country. So if you haven't already, the time is now to become a CanadaLand supporter. Just head over to canadaland.com join. Once again, support CanadaLand today by heading over to canadaland.com join. So we've been making comments for five years now. It's over a hundred episodes and counting. And our plan? Well, it's to keep making more seasons, even more episodes. And when I say we, I don't just mean the Commons team. I'm including you, our listeners and supporters. We can't make this show without you. We can't keep bringing you exceptional reporting every week without your support. We want to make it as easy as possible for you to become a CanadaLand supporter. So from now until the end of May, we have a special deal for our listeners. Sign up now for just $2 a month for the next six months. You'll get access to all the episodes of Commons one week early and ad-free, as well as exclusive bonus content from all of our shows. There's discounts on merch, tickets to our live events, and so much more. This is a limited-time offer, and it's a pretty great deal that helps support our journalism. Just go to canadaland.com join or click the link in your show notes to become a supporter today. You can only get to the Corsi by small, small boats, like people that live there, everyone's got their own little boat. For people that have never been to the Gulf Islands, it exudes a tranquility. It's just full of arbutus trees and just beautiful vistas and little bays. De Corsi is one of the Gulf Islands, a chain of islands that sit between Vancouver Island and the mainland of British Columbia. And De Corsi is known for its beauty. It's a place that has always drawn people in for better or for worse. And one of those people is Bill Miner, a playwright from British Columbia. He, like many before him, ended up traveling to De Courcy Island because of a man. He's one of the most distinctive men in Canadian history. Brother 12 was a charismatic individual. Charismatic, although a very small figure. He had these these eyes that just seemed to draw people in, a very mesmerizing voice at a time in society where people were maybe needing answers, needing salvation. He looked like a perfect person to follow. And many did follow him. In the late 1920s, spiritual seekers came to British Columbia, some traveling thousands of miles to be close to him. Together, they would build a settlement on De Courcy Island, and some of it is still standing today. There's a number of structures from that time in 1929 to 33 or something like that that are still there. I can imagine when the first uh, acolytes came over and they were clearing the land and 
They were just looking out into these beautiful vistas of ocean and these trees and all this wildlife. They must have thought, well, he's already taken us to paradise. This is so beautiful. You could just look up from your toils, I guess, as an acolyte, look up and and just see the island mountains and the ocean. And he just thought, this seems worth it. It would only take a few years for Brother Twelve's acolytes to feel very differently about their choices. He would go on to be called the Devil of De Courcy Island, and for good reason. Brother Twelve prophesied about the coming apocalypse, but instead, his story would presage something different. He was a forerunner of the strange new religions that would sweep over the Western world. I'm Archie Mann, and this is Commons. More after the break. Bill Miner wrote a musical called The Cult of Brother Twelve that debuted in Nanaimo last year. And what attracted him to this character from British Columbian history is the enduring mystery around who he really was and why so many people decided to follow him. It's that that Jekyll and Hyde component where they've got that one face to the people that they draw in, and whatever their rhetoric is, whatever their spiel is, and however they connect with it, it's just that that openness that, that creates that connection to them. And then they've got that other place where they drop the mask in a safer place, or just by themselves, where they're covetous and greedy and scheming. And I'm always perplexed by by all people that join cults, but particularly the people that I would admire if someone were just to give me a short bio and go like, wow, good for them. They're giving all this to charity and they're doing this. And, and yet you go, oh yeah, by the way, they joined this cult and lost everything and lost all their integrity and self-respect. And, and you just go, what was it that I didn't see? Like, what is that flaw that they are so desperate to find redemption or, I don't know, some, some validation that they're lacking? You know, what is it? It's a mystery to me. Brother Twelve is probably one of the wildest figures in British Columbia history. That's Justine Brown. She's a writer and the author of All Possible Worlds, Utopian Experiments in British Columbia. And to properly understand this whole story, you need to know where Brother Twelve came from and the strange religious movement that he was part of that's still incredibly influential to this day. His real name was Edward Arthur Wilson. He was English. He was a theosophist and a charismatic leader. And he had a lot of contacts like among bigwigs. So he had like film stars and bankers and and people like this interested in him as a leader. Theosophy is not something you hear much about these days. But much of what we call New Age thought has its roots in this esoteric movement. And when I refer to New Age thinking, I'm talking about the whole range of South Asian-inflected spiritual groups and practices that became popular in the West in the 60s and 70s, many of which were fairly or unfairly labeled as cults. 
Theosophy was founded in 1875 in New York City and was initially led by a Russian mystic named Madame Blavatsky. The theosophists took bits and pieces of South Asian religions like reincarnation, yoga, and karma and blended them with European beliefs and practices. And by the 1920s, theosophy was all the rage among certain sets of society. The 1920s, they prefigured the 1960s. There were a lot of extremely experimental concepts like the age of Aquarius. There's a song in the 60s, the age of Aquarius. And this is like a new age concept that we are going into this new phase of human history. And there's an idea of like this very optimistic concept of, you know, we're moving forward, we're progressing, we're changing, we're becoming more perfect. All of those ideas and very like bohemian ideas were already present in the 1920s. Edward Wilson immersed himself in these new ideas. Here's Bill Miner again. He was drawn towards theosophy, took it and, and started interpreting himself and really started having visions very early on in his 20s. And he was very uh, peripatetic. He was sort of nomadic. He, he wandered to North America and did all sorts of different uh, itinerant jobs. And throughout that, he was keeping diaries and he was writing about what he felt were the reasons he was having these visions from the Masters of Wisdom. And he truly started developing a cohesive philosophy that seemed to draw people in. Edward Wilson began sending articles into theosophical publications that became immensely popular. And he said that he was receiving messages from the 12th member of the Great White Lodge, a sort of theosophical high command that included prophets like Jesus and Buddha. These masters spoke to him and told him that he was connected to these other very ethereal presences called the brothers, and he was this incarnation of the 12th brother, and so that's where he got the name Brother 12. He traveled through many countries spreading his message of a coming apocalypse that would befall the world. He would just get groups and uh, the theosophy groups or other groups that he was connected with all through North America and, and certainly in England, and he would just get up and start speaking and, and realize that what he had to say was of interest to people. And I think that, that kick-started his belief that he could take this somewhere else, he could take this somewhere larger, and he became believing of his own abilities as a leader that he has something to teach. And so this is the person that ended up coming to Nanaimo, at first, British Columbia might seem like an odd spot for a British mystic to try to build his new society. But the province has a long history of similar utopian experiments. There's a stereotype that BC is a place attractive to hippies and communalists. And according to Justine Brown, there's a lot of truth to that. Here she is again. What I found was that there was quite a long history predating the hippies of the 60s and going kind of fairly, you know, well back into the 19th century. And some of these communities were fascinating. You know, if I were to try to define a utopian community, it's usually a distinct, isolated 
community in some way. Like it could be in downtown of a city, but in some respect, it's kind of set off, right, from from the rest of the community. Because by definition, it's kind of a critique of the outside community, right? The implication is that the mainstream community is not sufficient. And colonies like Canada, and especially British Columbia, were incredibly attractive to groups that might be otherwise persecuted in Europe. I lately have been thinking about colonies as government laboratories. So if you go back to Britain in the 17th century, there's the English Civil War that was like fought between two factions of Protestants, but then there were all these other tiny Protestant sects. And so the question of what was to be the official position on religion was a very vexed question. And it's, it's like, this is what you build your society around. One of the first of these attempts at utopia was Metlakatla. Metlakatla was a mix of colonial missionary work and utopian community. While many of the indigenous people were there willingly, they had to wear Western dress and abandon any of their traditional practices. It was a kind of Christian utopian community designed for the Shimshan tribe in Queen Charlotte Island's area. And there was a missionary, and he was concerned about the fate of the local tribe, especially as the role of the Hudson's Bay Company started to recede somewhat. Eventually, he had to move, and he took the the community to Alaska. So there was new Metlakatla, and I believe 80% of the community went with him willingly. Then there's Sointula, which was a Finnish utopian community with theosophical beliefs on Malcolm Island, another of the Gulf Islands. Things did not go as well for them. I think they initially showed up in Nanaimo, and then they went north to Malcolm Island, and they, they kind of set up their community there. Unfortunately, their community hall burned down, and a lot of people died. They lost dozens of people, and it wasn't that large of a community to begin with, so was, that was very tough for them. I think that over the initial period of the first few years, something like 2,000 people cycled in and out of the community. It's quite something when you consider how far north Malcolm Island is. And then it gradually, that initial kind of experimental formal communalism faded away and the community eventually just became sort of a more of a conventional fishing community, but with a lot of pride in the, in the history. Other religious minorities and utopian communities have made their homes in British Columbia, including the Dukabors, hippie communalists, and even fundamentalist Mormons. And then, of course, there's Brother 12. But why does British Columbia attract these sort of groups in particular? The simple fact is that British Columbia was the last part of the temperate world to be mapped. So in a lot of the earlier maps around the time that the explorers were mapping as they went. Well, you see like the East Coast and you see you know, parts of South America, but the Northwest is just this kind of unknown terra incognita, right? Essentially, it's a big question mark. And the landscape itself often adds to that sense. It's partly the, the largeness and the mysteriousness, but also just the quality of the, the actual landscape and the, the mountains and the mists and the way things shift all the time, and the creatures, and the sense that you don't quite understand all that's contained there. You can imagine the awe that Brother Twelve's many followers must have felt when they arrived to that land. 
Here's Bill Miner again, recalling his visit to DeCourcy Island. And even the tree, the tree that he used to prophetize to the acolytes is still there. They used to just surround it, and then Brother 12 would just give his talks. You, you could see really why people that would come there looking for something that actually de Courcy Island itself really added another layer of that to, to draw them. Brother 12 preached that the end of the world was just around the corner. And considering that this was the 1920s, he wasn't entirely wrong. After all, the Great Depression, World War II, atom bombs, they were all only a few years away. And Brother 12 preached with a conviction that led many to be enthralled by him. By 1927, Edward Wilson had fully become Brother 12. But then, how did he end up becoming the so-called Devil of DeCourcy Island? To help tell that part of the story, we're going to bring in Commons producer Jordan Cornish. So, who, who exactly were the people who were following Brother 12 all of this way? These are largely well-to-do people, professional types, doctors, authors, scholars, lawyers. These were the kind of people reading and interacting with Wilson's work when he was starting to kind of come up. And tell me a little bit about their first community. Well, sometime when Wilson was still in England, he writes up something called the, quote, special urgent letter, unquote. Honestly, the letter reads like a pretty dire call to action that really just kind of hinges on the idea that everyone who stays behind is, is going to die in fire and brimstone, and you have to come with him for salvation. You know, not a large group of people, under, under 10, a small group of folks take him up on this. So eventually, him and his followers, they end up in BC, and they start looking at a few different places. They, they end up settling in a place called Cedar-by-the-Sea, this like beautiful area. It's a small logging town that's like a few miles south of Nanaimo. And of course, like, you know, they have, to, they have to pay for that land. They have to pay for the travel. Everything is paid for by his followers, by these sort of well-to-do, decently wealthy donors who just support the whole venture. But what was it actually like for these people to live there when they arrived at Cedar-by-the-Sea? I mean, those first few months would have just been filled with construction, like from framing up houses to clearing the land. One of the first things they did was they built a couple of sailboats. Uh, They bought a car. This was also a time that membership was increasing quite a bit, uh, not just in BC, but like across North America. About 125 groups formed across Canada and the US. Most of these groups had around like 10 members or less, but it was still like a pretty significant amount of people that were involved and interested in what he had to say. This was one of the fastest growing spiritual movements of that day. They started publishing a monthly magazine in 1927. It was called The Chalice. And That's a good name, honestly. Yeah, no, no, no problems with the name. <laughs> uh, but its first issue ended up causing a bit of a stir. This issue revealed that he was quite anti-Semitic. He ardently believed in like that newly popular in the 1920s conspiracy that a small group of Jewish people were controlling the banks. And he also heavily criticized the Roman Catholic Church. And it actually was his concerns around the Roman Catholic Church that got him even more involved in politics. And he became weirdly involved in the 1928 presidential election in the U.S. At this time, Al Smith, who is a Catholic, has won the Democratic nomination. Franklin D. Roosevelt took the stage to praise as only he could do, the man for whom he has always had such affection and respect, naming him again, the happy warrior, his friend, Alfred E. Smith, the governor of New York. And Wilson is an extremely anti-Catholic bigot. He decides he's got to try and fund a third party 
that he expects will become the dominant political force in the United States. He's actually very, very convinced of this. And this spectacularly does not work out for him, but it does take a lot of his time and energy and I think is like a good example of where his ambitions lied at the at the level of maybe delusion that he was at at this point. Like he really thought that this was this was going to be a thing. But then it's right around this time that he makes the claim that kind of changes everything for him and his followers. While he's traveling in the United States, Brother 12 then comes home and he tells his followers that he is the reincarnation of the Egyptian god Osiris. If you're at all acquainted with Egyptian mythology, Osiris is is one of the one of the big gods in the Egyptian pantheon. This is also a time that I think it's important to note. This is like Indiana Jones era, right? Like King Tut's tomb was just discovered in 1922. There's in a lot of ways this is the like the golden age of Egyptology. I suppose most excavators would confess to a feeling of awe, almost embarrassment, when they break into a tomb closed and sealed by pious hands so many centuries ago. So Brother 12 either has convinced himself at this point or it's part of the narrative that he's going with at that time that he's Osiris. And what I love about this story is that it happens while he's on a train. There's potentially a ritual involved that he had to do and he does it with a fellow passenger that he meets on this train. It's a woman who just happened to be the reincarnation of the Egyptian goddess Isis, Osiris's consort. Even more convenient, they were, of course, destined to have a baby together, and that would be Horus reborn. And Horus, of course, is another important figure in Egyptian mythology, but let me ask you, did Horus end up being reborn? It's actually a pretty sad story. Both she and Wilson were already married when they got together, when they met on the train and found out that they were these reincarnated Egyptian gods. But they they had, you know, by all accounts, a, a love affair. And she got pregnant fairly quickly. And Wilson brought her back to the colony. He kept her presence secret for, for a little bit. And uh, Wilson's wife, of course, lived there. And when word ultimately got out, you know, people were pretty shocked about it. It's a scandal. Critics who are already starting to get a little bit louder start to accuse him of advocating for things like free love and are just generally upset with this behavior. But then Myrtle, which is the name of of the woman that is Isis, uh, miscarries the child and has a number of additional miscarriages and eventually has a nervous breakdown. and, And we don't know much more about her life after that. That's awful. Yeah. There were a number of things going on that started alienating his followers from from Wilson. There was the money being spent on the American presidential election, which was weird. And his followers soon discover that a lot of the money that they thought they had donated to the Aquarian Foundation was actually just in Wilson's name. And then some of them eventually went to the police and pressed charges. So it was sex and money that ended up being his downfall. That That seems a bit on the nose. This wasn't actually his downfall. He was charged. He was charged with embezzlement. And then what happened was just like one of the weirder scenes that's probably ever taken place in British Columbia court. So first, the the Crown's case basically fell apart immediately. One of Wilson's followers was this wealthy socialite from Toronto, and she had already donated over $25,000 to Wilson. She donated to him personally. And she said that she was fine. She wanted him to do whatever he wanted with it. And then right there in the courtroom, 
She writes a check for another $28,000, hands it to him, does this in front of the judge, just basically to prove the point that it's fine. That's, that's quite the set piece. Honestly, that's like not even half of it. There were numerous reports from this time that claimed lawyers, multiple witnesses began blubbering in the courts. They couldn't get out their words and people were blacking out, pausing mid-sentence. You know, there was just all sorts of strangeness going on in this courtroom. It became kind of like a media sensation because the claim was that Brother 12, Edward Wilson, was using black magic in court. Uh, A guy named Victor Harrison, who was in the court that day, he had been the mayor of Nanaimo for like a few years, and he would serve again after this trial. But this is him talking in an old documentary about what happened. He had some papers in his hand. When all of a sudden he collapsed, sat shape, and he collapsed on the floor and lay there as if he had been knocked out. And a few, in a moment or two later, three or four people sitting on the low bit collapsed. So there were four, three people were down with some sort of mental trouble or dizziness or hypnotism or whatever you might want to call it. So other people would go on to claim that individuals in the gallery had been mass hypnotized. As you can imagine, the the trial of a strange religious leader like this was just like a huge deal across Canada. So all of these accusations just kind of made him like a bigger sensation. And so what what happened with the verdict? Oh, the charges were dropped. He ended up moving his community from Cedar-by-the-Sea to DeCourcy Island. And basically things got weirder from there. Partially because this is where he meets a woman who is known as Madame Z. She was married, and uh, I don't know much of her background prior, but she seemed easily persuaded to to do Brother Twelve's bidding. I mean, you know, she made up excuses to her to her husband, and then sort of forsook the marriage completely. Madame Z was Brother Twelve's enforcer. She was making all the other acolytes, all the followers, kind of work all day, all night, punishing them when they fell out of line. She was making them do increasingly absurd things. And all of this was kind of in the name of proving their devotion to Wilson, to Brother Twelve. Madame Z was a dominatrix of some sort, and she became known for mistreating the inhabitants, like whipping them while they were trying to garden or whipping them as they were gardening to get them gardening faster. I'm guessing that this doesn't end up well for Brother 12. The community in DeCourcy Island certainly doesn't end well. There's an uprising against him by his followers who eventually are, are sick and tired of, of being worked like, like dogs by Madame Z, are sick of the kind of like interpretation of theosophy that, that isn't going the way that they, that they thought it would. And then in, in like just a fit of rage, as the colony is beginning to collapse, Brother 12 starts just indiscriminately destroying buildings and and things that they have. This includes farming equipment, a number of buildings, even sinks one of his own ships. And what ended up happening to him? Well, the story we know is that Brother 12 and Madame Z flee the island. They take a small boat that he'd hidden away, and eventually they they flee to Europe, where Brother 12 is said to have died in, in 1935. The story of Brother Twelve has remained an object of fascination for the last century. Much of the interest revolves around a cache of gold that he was supposed to have hidden away, though so far all the treasure hunters have come up empty-handed. But to me, what I find so fascinating about Brother Twelve is how strangely modern his story is. You can find the vestiges of theosophical thought everywhere in modern Western culture, from yoga to Wicca and everything else in between. 
and the way in which Brother 12 combined Eastern spirituality with anti-Semitism and religious bigotry feels reminiscent of the way many wellness influencers eventually go on to become QAnon conspiracists. There's still debate as to whether Brother 12 actually thought of himself as a reincarnated god or if he was simply a grifter. But I have to wonder, does it even matter? I think that there were times when he truly believed. He believed that he heard voices. He truly believed he had something to offer these people to wrench them from this horrible life. But I think his lecherousness, he was a womanizer, and he was greedy and manipulative, and perhaps a little imbalanced, aren't we all? The story of Brother 12 still fascinates and even frightens some people in and around Nanaimo. And the families of people who lived through his short, strange commune are still around. Bill Miner remembers one conversation he had when he visited DeCourcy. He'd run into some longtime residents, and they had a story to tell him. They'd been in California, and coincidentally, they'd been on a dock in San Francisco, and they were just chatting with someone that was there. And the person just got around to ask them where they're from, and they said, well, you know, from Nanaimo. And they go, oh, did you ever know about the Brother 12? And he says, you know, of course. And, and they said, well, I was, I was a child. My parents brought me to DeCourcy. We weren't there that long, but we were there about a year. And the person went, wow, so did you ever give that much thought? What was that like? And, and, and they said, you know, for me, I really enjoyed the experience. I loved the farm animals and, you know, we had all this freedom that we never had back home. And it was, it was great. I've always meant to go back and just nostalgically, you know, have a look around. And then they said, but, you know, my brother and sister, I guess they had a different experience because they, they won't even talk about it. That's your episode of Commons. If you liked this episode, please leave us a rating and review in Apple Podcasts. This episode relied on work done by Justine Brown, Bill Miner, John Oliphant, and many others. If you want to get in touch with us, you can tweet us at CommonsPod. You can also email me, arshi at canadaland.com. This episode was produced by me, Noor Azria, and Jordan Cornish. Our managing editor is Annette Edgefor. Our editor-in-chief is Karen Puglesi, and our music is by Nathan Burley. You can listen to Commons ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. If you value this podcast, please support us. We rely on listeners like you paying for journalism. As a supporter, you'll get premium access to all of our shows ad-free, including early releases and bonus content. You'll also get our exclusive newsletter, discounts on Canadaland merch, invites and tickets to our live and virtual events, and more than anything else, you'll be a part of the solution to Canada's journalism crisis. 
and you'll be keeping our work free and accessible to everybody. Come join us now. Click the link in your show notes or go to canadaland.com slash join. This episode is brought to you in part by the Douglas Mattress. Now, I've said it before and I'll say it again. One of the best, and I mean the best things you can do for yourself, is to get a good quality mattress. The time is now, people. Douglas is giving our listeners a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress protector, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That's douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 